We're continuing our series called God With Us. Uh, this is the third week uh, that we're going to be in this series, and we've got two weeks left um, next Sunday and the Sunday after that. So let me read to you uh, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler." who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them uh, to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, don't miss this, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. How many of you just love the traditions that center around Christmas? Do you love them? Awesome. Uh, For me, it was... Uh, drinking a Coke, eating tamales, and listening to the Christmas story. That was our kind of tradition. Um, But I want to share with you some interesting traditions from around the world. Because the reality is, much of the world is going to celebrate Christmas, okay? It's not just us here in America. Like, the world, not every place, but most of the world celebrates Christmas. So I want to give you a few highlights that I thought were interesting from Christmas traditions Around the world. So in the country Holland, um, children in Holland receive presents from Sinterklaas. So S I N T E R K L A S S. So they receive presents from Sinterklaas on December 5th, not for Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. And instead of leaving cookies for Santa, they leave carrots for Santa. Right? So they leave carrots for Santa's horse, and he gives them sweets instead. Um, in Austria, in the first week of December, this is one of my favorites, um, the young men dress up as Krampus. So if you know who Krampus is. Um, and they dress up as Krampus, and so it's kind of this scary, demon-like character. And they roam through the streets with bells and whistles and try to terrify kids. So if you go to Austria, you'll see some Krampuses running around the streets trying to terrify kids. So don't take your kids to Austria in December. Um, In Japan, um, Christmas isn't widely celebrated, but just recently there's a trend that has started um, of eating fried chicken on Christmas. Now, what's interesting is if you look at a Japanese KFC menu, you will see something that says Xmas special, okay? So you can go into KFC in Japan and order the Christmas special, and so you'll eat fried chicken together as a family in Japan. Um, In Iceland, For the 13 days leading up to Christmas, there are 13 troll 
Trixie-like characters known as the Yule Lads. So, Yule Lads. And they come out and visit the children those 13 days leading up to Christmas. And each night of Yuletide, the children put their best shoes on the window seal, okay, for each troll-like character to come by. And if you were good that year, they'll put some sweets in your shoe, and you can eat those sweets. But if you're bad, they put rotten potatoes in there, okay? So um, my favorite one, I think, oh, they're, well, first of all, in Norway, they hide their brooms on Christmas Eve um, because it was long believed centuries ago that spirits and demons would come along and they would try to take your brooms and ride them through the streets. So on Christmas Eve in Norway, it's a tradition that everyone plays a game out of hiding their broom so it's not stolen. But my favorite is in Sweden, okay? I don't know if you know this, um, but in 1966, they built a 42-foot-tall Yule goat. It stands in the middle of the city. Um, and, but the interesting thing is, this tradition, so everyone comes out and they look at this large goat, right? But it created another tradition, a game of, can we burn down the goat this year? So seriously, so since 1966, the goat has burned down 29 times. And every year they rebuild it, and it's kind of a fun tradition of, will the people of Sweden be able to get around the authorities and burn down the goat? There's a live stream where you can just look in to see if the goat is still standing, okay? The last time it was burned down is it was in 2016, so I think it's due to be burned down again. Um, but here's the deal. The world will be celebrating Christmas. It's not just us. Um, and Christmas... If you look at this story, it is about the worship of a king and a king calling the nations to himself. So while the world is celebrating Christmas, we have to understand that this Christmas story is much more than just us. It's for the nations. It's for all people to worship the one who has come, the one who has come from perfect heaven to broken earth to take the payment for our Sin, that he hasn't just come for us, but he is gathering people from every nation on the globe. And so in this text, in these 11 verses, I want to show you the global purposes of God in the birth of Christ. And it's absolutely fascinating, the riches that are in this text. So there's not some kind of creative outline for today. We're just going to walk through the text, and we're going to jump back and forth between Old and New Testament a lot because this text is littered with Old Testament prophecy. And I want us to see how it ties together in Christ. So, Matthew 12, 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship. So I want to spend some time talking about these wise men, there's some mystery to who they actually were. There's some things that we do know about them, and there's some things that we don't know. Another name for them is magi or magicians. And so the first thing that we don't know about them is we don't know how many there were. Traditionally, it's taught that there's three, three wise men. But that's not exactly accurate. <laughs> we don't know that. It could be 10 wise men. It could be 30 wise men. We don't see that there's three in the text. We don't know how many there were. Um, the next thing that we don't know is we don't know their names. 
Now, church history and tradition will teach that their names were Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. Some say one was Ethiopian, one was Indian, and one was Greek, but we don't know that. It's not found in our Bible. The tradition goes on to say, which is pretty interesting, um, that they were baptized by Thomas much later, and a bishop in the 12th century actually found their skulls. Now, that may be true. We don't know. It could be true, but it's not in our scripture. So I can't say that for certain. Here's what we do know about them, and this is interesting. We know their setting. They're from the east. That could mean they're from Babylon. It could mean they're from Persia. It could mean they're from Egypt. But the fact that they're from the east is significant. So when you sing the first Noel and you say, these wise men looked up and saw a star shining in the east beyond them far, that doesn't exactly add up. Why? Well, because they're from the east. (laughs) So the star wasn't in the east. The star was in the west. They needed to go west to go to the star. So I hate to break it to you to be the Christmas Grinch, but the star was not in the east. It was in the west. We also know that they were high-ranking, important officials. So they had great political and religious influence. So when you picture these wise men, picture um, influential, wealthy, um, highly respected. They probably had a caravan of people with them, um, from soldiers to servants. Like a, Picture a large group of people with horses and wagons and wealth traveling through the city. Okay? A lot of people. They had great influence. Now, what's really interesting is that this story, or these wise men, they're coming, was actually prophesied about in Numbers 22. I don't know if you remember the story of Balak and Balaam. Anybody know that story? Um, It's an interesting story. Balak was the king of Moab. The people of God, they were growing. uh, They were growing in their numbers. And the king of Moab, Balak, was scared. He was nervous. This kind of terrified him. Um, And so he calls for Balaam, who is a magician from the east, to curse the people of Israel. Okay? So... Balaam gets on his donkey, and he starts to ride to Balak, and we get this moment in Numbers 22. Um, I want you to listen to this story. Numbers 22, starting in verse 22. It says, God's anger was kindled because he went, talking about Balaam, going to Balak. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in his way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road, with a drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. And then, this is the fun part, the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place when there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down, under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and said to Balaam, so the donkey talks, and he says, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey, <laughs> on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. I just think that one word answer, no. Um, And then verse 31, it says, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. 
the story goes on, and God makes it clear to Balaam, you are not to curse the people of Israel, but instead you are to bless them three times. And then in Numbers 24, we get this moment. Numbers 24, 15. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the word of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not near. I mean, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead, forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of sheep. Don't miss this moment. This is a promise from God that a king will come, that one will rise out of the people of Israel. A star will come and a scepter will rise. Who holds a scepter? A king. A king announced with a star that will deliver the people of God from their enemies. So hear this. Here in Numbers, you have a man from the east prophesying about a star and a king of the Jews. This is widely regarded regarded as a messianic prophecy. And so a picture of the coming Messiah. Now, when you get to Matthew, what do you have? You have men from the east following a star, going to a king of the Jews. Now, some say, well, that's coincidence. That doesn't exist with God. (laughs) It doesn't exist. This is the purpose and plan of God. Don't miss what's happening here. God is calling for the attention of the nations through a star. Calling for the attention of the nations through a star, a guiding light for all people. This idea is found in Isaiah. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6. Katie read it for us earlier. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light. The nations shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your, eyes, uh, brightness of your rising, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. A wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring what? Gold and frankincense. And they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Isaiah is saying, hey, the nations, they're going to come. <laughs> they're going to come to the king and they will bring gifts For worship, these wise men are being drawn by the star, by the light of God. And isn't it interesting that the first humans that we see worship Jesus in Matthew, which is a book written to a Jewish audience specifically, isn't it interesting that the first people who worship Jesus are Gentiles? They're people from the nations. That's not a coincidence. It's not. It's, it's the purpose and plan of God. It's a picture of God drawing all nations to the Messiah, that the promised Messiah for the king of the Jews would not just be the Messiah for the Jews, but it would be the king for all people. And this theme isn't unique to just Matthew 2. 
This is all throughout our Bible, of God drawing the nations to himself. So let me ask you, what are the purpose of the Ten Commandments? You might say, well, they're rules that we can follow. It kind of gives us a guide to know how God wants us to live. Yes, but if you read Deuteronomy 4, 5, 6, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is much bigger than that. It says, observe them carefully, talking about the Ten Commandments, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. So the purpose of the Ten Commandments is so that the nations will see who our God is. What about the wisdom of Solomon? Why was he given this wisdom? Well, many reasons. One of them is so that the nations would be drawn. In 1 Kings uh, 4.34, it says, Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who heard of his wisdom. So the nations are coming to Solomon and hearing wisdom about God. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? That popular, weird, VeggieTales story, right? What was the purpose of that story? Was it so that we could see God's love and faithfulness and protection? Yeah, but I think it's bigger than that. In Daniel 3.29, you have a foreign king worship God because of what God does. He says, therefore, I, Nebuchadnezzar, decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, for no other God can save in this way. What about Daniel in the lion's den? That popular story. What was the purpose of that? So that a foreign king would see and worship God. I, Darius, issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel and the Psalms is littered with the praise of God among the nations. Finish this verse. Be still. Is that it? Is that the whole verse? Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You've only got half the picture. Be still and know that he's God. Why? Because he will be exalted in all the nations, and he will be exalted in all the earth. And so this thread, all throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, has always been that the glory of God would be given among all nations. And here in this moment, what has been foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament reaches its culmination. As these wise men from the nation are drawn near by a star from Jacob that is an announcement that the king has arrived. The thread that's gone from the Ten Commandments to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and all through the Psalms, reaches its culmination here with these wise men. The nations are being drawn near. So as they were journeying, the Magi, um, it was probably like hundreds to thousands of miles. It would have taken them a long time time, a natural stopping place for them would have been Jerusalem, that that's a natural thing for them to assume, that that's where Jesus would be. So they start asking around. So if you've got a big caravan of people, that's probably going to put some red flags off to whoever's in charge, and whoever is in charge is in Herod. So that's why it says in verse 3, when Herod king heard this, they're all asking about Jesus, um, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So, in King Herod, we have a picture of a world leader, leader troubled by this uh, news of Jesus. Herod had been given control of Judea uh, by the Romans in 40 BC, and his label, 
his label was king of the Jews, okay? <laughs> king of the Jews. And so when he hears that there's a new king of the Jews, how do you think he's going to respond to that? He's not going to like it. Um, and here's the deal. King Herod, he wasn't even a, an official king. He was just Herod Antipas. But he liked to ascribe himself as king. In fact, much later, in, um, you know, several years later, he actually petitions to Rome to be made king, and they depose him. They say, you want to be king? No, no, no. You're out. And they kick him out. Um, and so he's got this lust for power. Um, he had killed several of his children and wives because he thought that they were going to betray him. So when he hears that influential officials have journeyed to Jerusalem to find a baby born king of the Jews, that announcement clearly threatens his power. And why is Jerusalem threatened? Why are they scared? Well, because they know King Herod. They know what he might do, which we'll see later that he does. Verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, Matthew is going to reference these chief priests and scribes all throughout the book. They're going to be the main opposition to Jesus. The chief priests basically represented Jewish worship. So they represented God to the people of God. That's what God had intended for this group to be. Unfortunately, this group had become a group of corrupt politicians. Their aim was not the glory of God. Their aim was to please the king, to please Herod. And then the scribes were Jewish lawyers. They interpreted the law of God for the people. And I want to point something out about this group, just kind of a sidebar. The chief priests and the scribes are so concerned with their own power being maintained with the worldly power of the day that instead of receiving the news of the Messiah with joy, what do they do? They help Herod keep his power. Their own desire for, desire for approval and power causes them to miss the one they had been waiting for. Their own desire for power. And the next time we see this king of the Jews label is when? It was on the cross. And the inscription says, king of the Jews. When they're crucifying him, they completely miss it. And my prayer for us is that we would not be so foolish. That we would be so consumed with our own power and our own desires that we miss Christ. It's a scary thought to know that your mind can be filled with the word of God, but you would not know God. And none of us are safe from it. We're all in danger of filling our minds with facts. So we can talk about it, we know how to look a certain way, but completely missing the one who can satisfy us. And so I just want to put a warning there that this group was meant to point to Christ, the one who is coming, and they completely missed it. And our purpose is to point to the one who has come. So may we not be so foolish to miss it. Verse Five. It says, they told him, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, this quotation is from Micah 5, and it's interesting what Matthew does. Matthew basically paraphrases Micah 
5, but he adds a couple things that are interpretive that help us understand the significance of what's happening in Matthew 2. So let me read to you uh, Micah 5, starting in verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, when you look at those verses in Micah and Matthew, you'll notice a couple differences, and they're interesting. The first one, that instead of saying Bethlehem Ephrathah, like Micah does, Matthew says Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Okay, why do you think he does that? Bethlehem in the land of Judah. I want you to remember two weeks ago when we talked about the genealogy of Jesus, that Matthew 1 shows us that all of history has been leading to this point. All of history has been leading to this point, that the Old Testament isn't a collection of stories, but rather a thread that leads to a king, a thread that leads to the Savior of the world, a thread that leads to a king that would come from the line of Judah. Matthew 1, 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. That the line of Judah ultimately resulted in who? King David. And where was King David born? Bethlehem. Matthew is tying together the line of Christ from Judah to David to Christ. And he's pointing you towards a king, a kingly Line. So the place where David was born, was born is the same place that King Jesus would be born. Matthew is reminding us of the promised Messiah that he would come from the line of David. None of this is coincidence. The second thing that Matthew does in comparing this to Micah is Matthew raises, raises the significance of Bethlehem where Micah lowered the significance of Bethlehem. He says, and you, O Bethlehem, are by no means least among the rulers, and Judah, that's different than Micah. Micah, Micah says that they can't even be among the clans of Judah, meaning this village holds little importance. Now, Matthew, in contrast to that, raises the significance of Bethlehem by saying, no, 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 no longer. You are no longer insignificant. That although, Bethlehem, you are small in size and the scope of history, you may be the most important city that has ever existed. And then he goes on, and he says in verse 6, for, you, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's a reference to 2 Samuel 5, 2, where we see God promises to King David, and he says that God will bring the one who will shepherd his people. So Matthew 2, 6 is a clear picture that one day from a good shepherd will come from the line of David, and this shepherd will lead God's people back to him. The one who reigns as king with all authority, will rule as shepherd with kindness and grace. I want you to see, I know that was a lot of Old Testament tying together, and it didn't get kind of drawn out. But what I want you to see in these first six verses is that there is no misprint in Scripture. It all ties together around one person, Jesus Christ. Different books from different human writers, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are giving us a portrait to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Your Bible is not boring. It's not. It all ties together around 
Christ, that it paints a picture of a king who will come to rescue all nations. The Old Testament points toward this king. The New Testament gospels announce this king. And the rest of the story is the church's response to that king. It all ties together around Christ. It's the purpose of God and the glory of God displayed in the word of God. Don't underestimate it. It goes on in verse 7. It says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So Herod's scheming. And then he says, He sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come worship him. Which we know from later is a lie. He has no intention of worshiping anyone else. His intention is murder. It's not kindness. And then it says, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now think about this. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but the star moves. (laughs) Think about that. The star moves. God makes a literal star change position. Remember the burning bush, the parting of the Red Sea, the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all these things that have happened. This is just another moment in God's redemptive plan to bring about the king, his son. God moving the star is an echo, a resounding yes, that the king has come. And he's guiding the nations to Jesus. Now, if, you've, if you're these wise men, You've traveled for months, and you see the star that you've been following supernaturally moves, and so you're following it, and you get to Jesus. How do you think you feel? Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The word that I can think of to describe this little moment is giddy. They're giddy. Like, they're they're giddy. I don't know. It's a fun word. They're giddy. They rejoice exceedingly. With great joy. They're like me when I was 10 and I went and saw the Power Rangers in the movie theater. And I came home and I rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I was giddy about what I just saw. Now, keep in mind, this is likely long after the night that Jesus was born. It was months or maybe even over a year since Jesus was born. They're not in a stable, but they're in a house. So I hate to break it to you, but the wise men in front of your nativity scene... That's not accurate. Don't hurt me. Um, No, you can keep them there, but just know that the wise men came much later. Um, It's okay that they're there, but here in Scripture, it's actually much later. Jesus is probably over a year old. So these wise men, they're giddy, they're excited, and here's what happens. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. What a picture. These prominent men from the nations bow down and worship a baby. That the only response that they can come up with when they encounter the king is to get down on their knees. And it says this, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. It was customary to bring gifts when you were meeting a superior. But it's definitely possible, as you look at scripture, that each of these gifts did have some symbolism that they meant something. Um, Gold was a symbol of royalty all throughout the Old Testament. When we see King Solomon, Solomon's royalty described in 1 Kings 10, we see gold mentioned 10 times 
within seven verses. Gold is often ascribed to royalty, and the main thrust of Matthew's gospel is what? That Jesus is king. And in Matthew 1, it's made clear that Jesus comes from the line of David, is worthy of royal honor. In Matthew 2, we see Jesus given that royal honor. So gold could be um, saying that he's king. Frankincense could be emphasizing Jesus' deity, that he was God. It's used all throughout the Old Testament as an offering to God. It's stored in the chamber of the sanctuary in 1 Chronicles 9, and then also in Nehemiah 13. It's mentioned around 100 times in the Old Testament, and usually it's referring to some kind of worship or service to God. So it could be emphasizing Jesus' deity. Myrrh could be emphasizing Jesus' humanity. It was largely associated with the anointing of a man. It, sometimes it was mixed with wine as an anesthetic. Um, it was used as a perfume. Uh, it was used to prepare bodies for burial. In fact, in Mark 15, you see Jesus on the cross and the Roman soldiers offering what? Wine mixed with myrrh. And so myrrh is offered to a king in a cradle. And then much later, it's offered to a king on a cross. In John 19, Joseph of Arimathea prepares Jesus' body with myrrh for burial. And so I am led to believe that this, these gifts are a foretaste of emphasizing who Jesus is. Think about it. Gold, that he's a king. Uh, frankincense, that he's God. And myrrh, that he's a man. A king who is fully God and fully Man, and it's kind of a somber thought and also a joyful thought at the same time when you think about this Christmas season and the reality of Jesus coming, the reality that Jesus came for one reason, that he was a king born to die. He was born to take the payment and penalty of sin himself, that the king in a cradle would be purposed to be a king on a cross, and that he would be put in a tomb, having died for our sins, but that he wouldn't stay there. His resurrection is a resounding celebration that what God began in the Old Testament has completed, that it is finished. And our only response as the church, just like the wise men, can be worship. So, what's the point of Matthew 2? If I could just give you one line. It's the global purpose of God. The global purpose of God is the glad praise of Christ among all peoples of the world. That God has a global purpose and that it's that every single person, nation, tribe, and tongue would give him the praise, the glad, glad praise. That when we praise him, it is joyful for us because he is worthy of that Praise, And there's no other place that we would be. So it's the glad praise of Christ among the peoples of the world. Here's the deal. God directs all things toward this purpose. All things. Like, he makes the star move to make his name known. <laughs> he makes the star move to make his name known. He arranges the sky to announce his son. Think about that. God arranges the sky to announce his son. He uses the stars to say, I am supreme above all things. That Matthew's aim is to show us 
that Jesus, yes, is born king of the Jews, but he's much more than that. From the Gentiles being included in the genealogy of Jesus to the nations being directed by a star, God is ushering in all nations to worship the king. And here, at the beginning of Matthew, the message is clear. It says, nations, come near. Come near to me. And you know what's interesting? What's the message at the end of Matthew? What's the message at the end? Go. Go to the nations. Here at the beginning, it's nations come near. And then at the end, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. That there's a thread. God being glorified among all nations. That the God who 2,000 years ago sovereignly arranged the stars in the sky that led the wise men to Christ is the same God, I want you to hear me, it's the same God that arranges my life and arranges your life. Just as he moves the star around, he moves our lives around. From the place you work, to your relationships, to the school that you go to, that in every moment, God is graciously arranging your life for the praise of his name. And here's the deal I would just ask you, that anxiety that you have, that frustration that you have, that fear that you have, what's it based on? Is it based on our God and his word? Or is it the enemy? Or is it your own mind trying to convince you that God is not who he says he is? The God who arranges the star to gather the nations to praise for the praise of his name, is the same God who is arranging your life. Why are you not trusting him? Why do we not trust him? Why are we so quick to just move on to the next thing? Are we so quick to go to something else before we go to him? So I would just ask you that this week during Christmas season, that you would take a moment or moments to go, I believe you. (laughs) I believe that you came. I believe that you died. And I believe that you rose from the grave. And I believe that you are worthy of everything in my life. You would really believe it. And it would actually impact the things that you do. Because he's worth it.